0: The following talk was given at the InSight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's very nice to be here. You're sitting in Gil's seat, you know. (laughs) I, I do adore Gil. He's just such a great teacher and dear friend and been a mentor and just such a beautiful person. I know I'm preaching to the choir, to you all, obviously, with Gil. So I wanted to uh, come today and just share a few things. I was thinking about what to talk about, and I really wanted to talk about the three refuges, taking refuge, but I wanted to talk about it in a different way. I know you probably get a lot of monastic teachings here, and you probably hear about the three refuges or chant the three refuges if you go on retreat, and a lot of people um, kind of do that. Maybe it sort of feels like almost a ritual, But I wanted to talk about it on on deeper levels and a little bit of the different meanings to taking refuge and, and the aspects of how it could be really meaningful for you as you reflect on this, as this time that we're in right now, it's this kind of turning time, you know, and the Dharma's flourishing. Everywhere I go and get so many emails and people asking, how do I help start a center? And, uh, you know, and then you guys have a flourishing community here at the new Dharma Center opening and Spirit Rocks building and other places. It's like, wow, this is really great. And never has it felt more important to maybe reflect on this core teaching uh, that the Buddha talked about so often. So I just wanted to start with this joke. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's a Dear God letter. Starts as, so far today, well, dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I haven't smoked or drank or cussed anyone out. haven't lied, stolen, or cheated anyone. I feel thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm getting out of this bed, and um, i'm going to need a lot more help. <laughs> Sign trying desperately to be spiritual. <laughs> so in some ways is this this path is, is this challenging, and so we keep trying and we keep trying, and you know we're all trying to be very good people, open-hearted warm hearted It's not easy though, you know I have to just for a moment, I was in. I want to just share something. Uh, I, we have a center in downtown Oakland, and yesterday I did a day long for a hundred people there around opening the heart and living with a wise heart. But I had to acknowledge what had happened on Friday in Connecticut because it was just in the air. People spoke about it, had tears, and then you know it's just all the the things that I'd read online. You know, different comments. It was a lot of despair, like oh. We're trying so hard, and then look, you know, what kind of world is this? Or just this sadness that just felt that it sort of touched a nerve of all of us, and the president crying on TV. You know, I don't have a television, but it's so big, you just pick it up in the airwaves and online, and just, you know, its it it's feels like something important to just name, because we can't get lost in despair around things like that. And we kind of think... What's the point of it all? You know, why try so hard? Or some aspect of that. Or maybe we just curl up and stay in bed. So I was so happy a hundred people came out anyway to attend a teaching on opening your heart. Right? It was like, great, you're here. This is more important than ever actually, that you're here. Some way it's a statement that you're making for all of us to show up, to keep opening, to keep looking, to keep loving. A big cornerstone of my teachings is around the heart, is around compassion, balance with wisdom. We need both. That's true. But I think in our culture, especially in Western Buddhist groups that I've been in for years and trainings and just traveling, there's a little bit of an overemphasis on mind. Bhavana, mind development, right? There's a lot of that. And I think that's really great. You know, we need that. But it's also what I've seen, uh, and I want to share about this idea of taking refuge, is also taking refuge in, in love and compassion as being very important qualities on this journey. In fact, I don't think that you can get very far without that. Last year at Garrison Institute, um, Gil attended, many teachers attended. It was what they called the Maha Gathering, Maha Council. Where all of the kind of, I guess you could say, um, pioneer heavies, you know, it was like John Kabat was there and Lama Surya Das and some great llamas and then all and Jack Hornfield and Joseph and Sharon and all these kind of early pioneers. They gathered with a group of, um, uh, for seven days we were there actually, and for the first half, they were gathering, and then there was a group of younger teachers gathering, and I was part of that, that younger group. And then for the last four days, all those teachers, maybe 200 or so teachers, gathered. And during these days of discussions, it was really uh, beautiful because we talked about the flourishing of the Dharma. There's a lot of presentations and small groups and conversations. But one of the, I think, important topics that was uh, discussed was uh, our, the different students and the awakening of the students, or awakening of people, basically. And some of the teachers were saying, wow, you know, people aren't awakening like they used to. seems like there was you know, so much going on in the 60s and the 70s, and there was this huge mass awakening. People actually had real insight, real liberating insight, the kind that you really get free from, right, like real freedom. And um, they were trying to figure out that there seems to be a plateauing effect. And that was discussed, like, what is happening? And there was a lot of reflection and in a small group of teachers. We said, you know, what we're noticing is that it seems like there's so much self-hatred, right? There's so much aversion to oneself. And when I was in teacher training for many years, I've been out of it for a while now, I would sit, I had this great honor of sitting in a lot of interviews with Jack Cornfield, And he was such a great person to be a main mentor. And I started to notice, and I started to share this, I shared this with Gil and other teachers, that there's two types of people. And I use this analogy a lot. And it's as if you're going on a boat. We're all on these boats, you could say, going down the great stream of awakening. You know, we're all heading there, clearly. But there's one group of people, it's actually a small minority of people, that have this sort of innate love and compassion in them, right? they sort of kind of born with it. The paramis are alive in them. You know, maybe as children, it was reflected in their spirit, or maybe their families of origin helped to cultivate those qualities. So what happens is on retreats and in this whole dharma path, they're able to be in their boat. We're going down, say we're in these boats, and they're upright. And there's storms, and there's turns, and it's raging waters at times. But they're upright. They're steady. They could sort of meet the challenges of the mind. But then I would say the majority of people, what I saw, were really struggling. And it was as if they were going down the river in a boat. They were in the same boat, but they were capsizing maybe every 10 minutes or so. I don't know if you've ever flipped over in a canoe or a kayak. I have. It's An enormous amount of effort to get back up. I mean, exhausting. You're flailing. You're everywhere. You know. And then you have to turn it over and then begin again. And basically, everyone else is headed off, right? You're kind of flailing around, and then you get in again and you go, right? You're you're going, but then you capsize again. And I started to see that this quality with those who didn't have so much of these qualities of the heart developed. Because what happens is when the challenges of the confused egoic mind start to rise, they responded with this sort of inner violence, right? This sort of, um, they couldn't open to it. They couldn't open to the truth. They couldn't let go. And so, but they had wisdom, right? They could intellectually try to sort it through, but they couldn't actually on the heart level and a physical level really let go. And so there was this. These obstacles. So I wanted to talk about that in in context of the three refuges a little bit and, and share just some of my own insights of what I've noticed with my own practice. So when I think of taking refuge, I love that image of that. Like we go for refuge, and when you think of the Dharma, you think the Buddha said that here we are in the ocean of samsara, right? Sort of flailing around and, and then all of a sudden in this ocean, and there we are with seven billion other beings, right? Just get an image of that. We're all out there dog paddling or something, right? And then in the midst, you see an island, it's like, ah, oh, a refuge, right? And then you, you go towards that. And you think, ah, oh, this is great. Here I have land, and maybe there's some coconut trees and, you know, a little beach, right? And for a while, you take refuge there, Right, you find that as a place that you can you can regain a sense of clarity, you can practice, you can begin to look around, right? You you have you have a place that you're safe. So I like that image a lot of that when some way when we find the Dharma, this is such a beautiful aspect of taking refuge. We found something that is true, we found something that we can count on in this world where everything is dissolving, changing, things are happening. People are here today, but just like that, they could be gone, right? We're here now, but in just a while, we'll disperse, right? And where do we go with everything changing? Taking refuge is something solid, it's something real. And the Buddha said that that is a gem. You know, that that is a, a gem, an important, something important, something precious, that we have this. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, mm-hmm. obviously we can mean Chakyamuni Buddha, this beautiful little statue here. But really I love to think of it as you're taking refuge in your own Buddha nature, right? that own, that own awakening, that seed that is inside of everyone that's driving them, especially in communities like this, something that calls you out at you know, 9 o'clock in the morning to come sit, to come practice. Some of you have been here for many hours. I think it was really impactful also last summer after I went to the Garrison teaching conference, I went to um, DC to do a 10-day teaching with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He was doing the great Kala Chakra teaching, which was really beautiful. It was elaborate Tibetan you know, ritual, you could say. But basically, to sum it up in one sentence, then, you know, we built a huge, the monks built a huge sand mandala, sand mandala of the universe. And then for 10 days, we blessed it as a way to elevate consciousness for world peace. It was called the Kala Chakra for World Peace. And so there we are in the Verizon Center. I don't know, me and 25,000 others. <laughs> and we were um, listening to His Holiness give all these different talks and teachings. And, and, but then one day, he stopped in the middle and they kind of, um, he, you know, he had his face up on a jumbotron, but I was close enough to the stage where I could see him. And then he said, I hope you think enlightenment is possible, right? You do believe this, right? And, and he kept going on, You have to believe that. If you don't really believe in awakening, if you don't really believe in Buddha, you'll never get there. You won't be able to set your compass there if you don't really believe that this is possible for every human being you must understand this is true, right? And he went, like, got kind of fired up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's like, you have to believe that. You know, we're all like, he's like, it's true. Awakening is possible. Even though your mind's confusing your suffering now, it's possible. You will get there. Set your compass in that direction. So again, I was thinking of the refuge of the island, like, ah, I set my compass to that, you know? I align that. So I found that to be very inspiring, actually. It touched me. Because there's somewhere in me that's like, is this possible? You know, I've been through so many traumas. Is it possible for me? You know, like, you know, each person has to kind of sit up and say, yeah, this is possible. And I think that that's the difference, is that in other cultures, they had this deep faith in that. Right? And we're kind of like, mm, maybe, you know. Or maybe I just want to feel a little better, you know. We don't really have that overarching, like, freedom, right? Like, yeah, if I could just, you know, suffer a little less, I'd be good. And that's okay, too. But then, then we don't reap the real reward, right? We don't really. Then we just feel a little better, but we don't have liberating insight, right? In some way, there has to be some kind of alignment or some kind of... Uh, some kind of belief in that as a possibility that each individual has the capacity to awaken um, their own heart and mind. So we take refuge in that potential. We take refuge in the compassionate heart, the wise heart. We have to balance wisdom and insight with love. Because I don't think we can really, like I said, open to the truth of this amount of suffering. The confused mind is enormous. I mean, just look in our world right now. We see this playing out. There's wars, raging, greed everywhere. Right? And there's also beauty and love. I'm not diminishing that. But if you look at the amount, you know, what we're in our own mind and what's created collectively, it's kind of, it's big. It's big. A grandfather from the Cherokee Nation was talking with his grandson. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil and ugly. He is anger, envy, war, greed, self-pity, and sorrow. Resentment, inferiority, lies, pride, superiority, arrogance. The other wolf is beautiful and good. He is friendly, joyful, peace, love, hope, humility, serenity, benevolence, justice, fairness, empathy, generosity, gratitude, and deep vision. The same fight is going on inside you and inside of every human as well. The grandson paused in deep reflection because of what his grandfather had just said. Then he finally cried out, "Oi, grandfather, which wolf will win? The elder Cherokee replied, ah, the one that you feed. The one that you feed. So in some way, we're here practicing, like feeding the good wolf, right? <laughs> we come, we sit, the mind goes crazy, we keep sitting. On the outside, I, we all look very equanimous, you know. <laughs> On retreats, I, I love to work with people, and I was teaching a retreat last summer for young adults, and there was a girl there, young girl, she said um, that after four days, she said it was like she was meditating in a telephone booth with a lunatic with a megaphone. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, she really had a genuine question. She said, can you please help me? (laughs) You know, with all the love in her heart, like, I've got, this is horrible, right? Right. And I was like, oh, I know, we all have these lunatics and and we're all in these telephone booths and the lunatics have megaphones. I was like, but you know, that's not the only person in that telephone booth. There's a Buddha in there too. And don't forget that it's not just the lunatic, that there's a wise one in there. And what we're doing is we're, we're healing the lunatic and we're awakening and watering the Buddha, right? So then that becomes louder, that becomes more of the lead. Right now, we just, a lot of people just hear the lunatic. They don't hear the other. And then in some way, that's what practice is, it's alchemy. Right? We're transforming the lunatic. But the question is how. This has been interesting. How do you transform that wisely? Because if you try to just go out and fight a lunatic, what happens? If you yell at a lunatic, what happens? They yell back. They get crazier. They thrive on that. Right? It's like, oh, great chaos, right? Let's get bigger and wilder and more out of control. So in some way, you have to approach the lunatic with tremendous skill, right? We have to love the lunatic, teach the lunatic, care for that part of the mind that's wounded in us, right? And that's why the compassion becomes a necessity, right? Because usually what we do now is we sort of pick up our baseball bats. So I learned this very uh, clearly on a recent retreat I had. And I reflected a lot on um, the Buddha's teaching, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. That's quite a beautiful statement, huh? Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And his other quote, very beautiful, in the Pali Canon, he said, the greatest protection in all the world is love and kindness. Like, wow, what what could he mean by that? And how can we cultivate that along with cultivating wisdom? This is really important. So in January, um, in February this year, for five months, I was on retreat. So February through July. So, I had plans to go on a five month retreat, and I decided to go in Crestone, Colorado. It's a beautiful <laughs> community there of a lot of Dharma flourishing. There's Tibetan centers, Zen centers, Hindu centers, yoga centers. It's this beautiful little, I don't know, kind of like Shambhala or Shangri La, in the foot of the Sande uh, de Cristo Mountains. Beautiful. So, I went to this little, I was planned to spend all five months at this little Tibetan center. And I was going to do a nundro practice, meaning I was going to ch- attempt to complete hundred thousand prostrations. So. <coughs> and um, I, after two months, it got too noisy for me. They, they had this Bhutanese Lama who was very chatty, and I think he liked to practice his English with me. So when he would see me coming, we would have these insane conversations, where you know he <laughs> asked me all these questions, you know, I'd have had to go on and on. He was really sweet, but after a short period, I was like, I've got to get out of here, you know. (laughs) He was looking for me everywhere, then, you know. So I was like, I need some more quiet. And I heard about these yogi cabins up in the mountains, owned by another spiritual community, another Buddhist group. So I had this fantasy this is real yogis go up (coughs) in the mountains, this will be so great. I'll be one with Mother Nature, I'll sit outside for hours under trees, you know, I had a lot of fantasies about, you know, <laughs> being alone for three months. And I grew up in the city on concrete, so it's not familiar, actually. I long to be really nature like that, you know, one of those type of people. But it doesn't come naturally. So it was up there, and there it had, a, you know, it was an outhouse, and then a wood-burning stove, so I had to, like, go get wood and make the fire when I was cold, and... It was still in the winter when I moved in. It was April. No, it was actually at the end of March. It was still cold. Uh, still many snowstorms came and went. And um, I thought, well, spring, you know, here you are and you're going to be your own teacher. I gave up my cell phone. I was like, OK, you know the Dharma. Teach yourself. When times get hard, be your own refuge. You know, I was I could do this. Right. Completely off the grid. So the nearest place was 20 minute hike down, you know. And uh, so I thought the worst thing that's going to happen to me in this cabin is a feeling. That's the worst thing that will happen is I'll have to feel something really hard, right? Isn't that what we're all scared of? Like your most horrific feelings, right? We're like, ah, we'll do anything to avoid that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, all right, I'll just feel, I can do this, right? And so I got all set up, and the caretakers brought water and food up this, you know, road that was pretty, and I would meet halfway down, because they could only get the truck up. But um, as soon as the caretaker was leaving, going down the hill, and I was standing out on the deck, I immediately descended into the worst fear and sorrow I'd ever (laughs) known. I was like, way! It's like, too late, here I am, you know. And then I entered into what was probably some of the most painful feelings I'd ever known and oceans of tears and the terror. I was just, I don't know, it was some kind of purification. I kept imagining being hacked to death, killed, raped, beaten up, you know, in this cabin I was completely alone. You know, and at night I could hear things moving all about, you know, and I would just be in there. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to survive with all these tears and the terror and this and that and just despair and loneliness. That I said, I don't know if I'll be able to make it. And I was outside sitting and reflecting, Buddha, help me, please. You know, saying this prayer out overlooking the mountain. Like I don't know if I can do this. And then it came to me um, to take refuge in compassion. And at that moment I said, oh, well, if I have compassion, maybe I can do this. And I remember I evoked that in and I was taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha with my practice of prostration. I would take refuge again and again and again. And I would be bowing and prostrating and bowing and then I would stop and then read these horrendous emotions, you know. And then I would go through that for a few hours and start the bowing again, you know, and the praying again. And I remember because I said, all right, I will take refuge in compassion like I've never known because I can't bear this without love. Right? I can't respond to these emotions with any inner violence, because that was so painful. And so as compassion became my best friend, you know I'd be feeling all these different feelings, you know, and oceans of tears and grief, I think so from maybe it's the ancestors or the Earth body coming through me. But see, this is the work that happens when we're purifying ourselves, when we're letting go. It doesn't come all the time with, you know, bliss and light. I had thought I would have bliss. I predicted that. So it would be great. I'll have these moments connecting to the bears and or whatever, you know, nature. <laughs> A bear did try to get in my cabin one day, too. So, But I thought it would be, you know, I imagine all, be- all beauty, you know, like we want liberation. Of, we want to be awakened. and We want to understand the Four Noble Truths without suffering or feeling anything too hard, right? I don't think that's the way of it. You know, even the Buddha's awakening, I think he went through a lot five years in the woods, five years out. I think he wept many tears. I think he went he almost killed himself. I think it was an epic battle, a bit of a, a chess match. And I think any being, you know, when you read the stories of the desert fathers, the Christian mystics, they would build these hermitages out in the deserts. I read this book and they'd be out there howling, screaming, and then somebody would look and they'd be like, it's just me and my mind, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, it's just this In the end, you in your own mind, right? Moment to moment, what is happening? So with compassion, I was able to bear what felt unbearable. And I felt like, yes, I took refuge in my heart in a deeper way, like, oh, I can show up here. And so in some way, that is taking refuge in the Buddha. And when we take refuge in the Dharma, how precious that we have these teachings. We have maps left behind, thousands of them. Isn't that great? Some way, these beings are like, here's the way. right? Follow this path. The Eightfold Path will take you there. The Buddha didn't invent the Dharma. He just cleared away an ancient path that was covered. You know how you have a trail, and then if you don't clear it once a year, you lose it. You can't find it. Someone has to come and clear it and go, here it is, and then put the markers on. You know, in some way the Buddhas are all the wise ones of every tradition have done that for us. And then we have great teachers that help us walk it. So we take refuge in the Dharma. I love this poem um, called Lost. It says, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again and again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to the raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. By a Native American elder. So we take refuge when we feel lost. Right? In Dharma, right? When we're in our deepest moment, what do you do? Right? You remember your practice. In my deepest moment, I felt that I was tested in that cabin. Okay, this is really bad. What are you going to do? Ah, I take refuge again. In my own capacity to awaken. You know, the seed inside. I take refuge in the Dharma. The Buddha said, this is possible. Right? And that would give me faith in that moment. I took deep faith in that. And then I took refuge in the Sangha. And here's the beautiful part about Sangha as we start to come to the end of this. We really can't do it without the Sangha. Look, somebody came and set up for you all today, right? And then somebody else made a donation to buy this place so that we could come sit in here. So there's some way the Sangha is the collective of people helping support all of this. And then when I was alone in my cabin, really suffering, I thought about all the beings who had freed their mind throughout eons and eons and the epic struggle. I thought of Jesus and when he had this 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, they say he battled the devil. right? And then other people and all the nuns I'd read about right? and, and staying in hermitages and cave. And I thought about this, these um, different stories I'd read throughout times right, of these epic sagas. And I thought, oh, they did it. So I grew stronger, thinking, well, if they could do it, I could do it. They had a mind just like my mind, right? They suffered just like I've suffered. And I take great, great uh, comfort in awakened beings on the planet. You know, all the teachers teaching. We can draw strength from that. When I didn't have any compassion, I borrowed it from Tara. I would say, Tara, come help me, please. Give me some compassion. Right? I don't have, I've lost it for the moment. Can you give me some? And then it would come, right? It was almost like, ah, thank you. I'm restored again, right? And I thought about all the people, as we take refuge in Sangha, we take refuge in all the people in this very moment, ringing bells, going into temples, reflecting, all the monastics and the nuns and the monks all over the world, right? In some way, we're connected to them. They are interconnected. Their practice affects us. Their faith affects us. When I go to Spirit Rock, I always go by the Gratitude Hut and do a little bow in there. You know that place, the land there? That's all the teachers of all these great teachers in there. And I thought, wow, without their teachers, these teachers wouldn't be here. And without their teachers, there's teachers. You know, it's this beautiful web. And that is the Sangha. We take refuge in that. It's really a beautiful comfort. When you're down and out, who do you call? Usually you Sangha friends, right? And they cheer you up, give you a few Dharma pep talks. Like, come to a group tonight, just meditate on it, say some metta, right? This is the beauty. It's like, oh yeah, what am I doing? Oh yeah, I'm going to practice mindfulness. I can be with that. That's really important to have friends on this path. I'm very lucky because I have many, many friends that remind me, many teachers of all kinds, Somewhere I must have needed that to get through this life because I have it. But I just never take that for granted. And I'm always bowing like, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of the truth. Thank you for reminding me of love. Thank you for reminding me of wisdom and letting go. It's important. And then the final thing I just want to say is that... um, you know, we cultivate love moment by moment. We incline the mind towards that. We incline the mind towards faith. Without faith, without compassion, it's a hard, brittle path filled with a lot of canoes capsizing, right, all over the place. So, with kindness and compassion, uh, you get strong. Love is not a wimpy emotion. Compassion is, I see now why the Dalai Lama and all these great beings talk about it as being so strong. I'm like, yes, now I bow to the feet of that. It is very strong because it's the only thing that will get you through, really, and that's powerful. But we need a lot of patience. So I just want to end with a funny story. It's called Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. The mother told her she couldn't have any, And Monica began to cry loudly. The mother said, They're there, Monica. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go. Then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum. Upon discovering there would be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home and have a nice nap." The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. "'I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica,' he began. Whereupon the mother said, "'I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy.'" (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I wanted to end because in some way that's what it takes some time It was like get through this moment I can go home right that's an aspect of love and compassion patience so I appreciate you all listening this morning and uh, may we all take refuge may all beings everywhere on this planet find true refuge refuge in the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha so we all awaken together. And I just also want to make one quick announcement. Um, I had this very strong inspiration when I was on retreat and then over the summer to celebrate what it's called the Great Turning for New Year's. So I'm putting on two huge New Year's prayer celebrations. Um, they're both in Oakland. One is um, New Year's Eve um, at a huge church. I rented out a venue of like a 300-person church and I have my most favorite musicians coming and Joanna Macy and other wisdom keepers. And it's a whole celebration um, on New Year's Eve, but it's to celebrate this shift that I feel is happening in our world and gathering and prayer. So I'm inviting people who like to come sing and make music. There'll be different aspects of prayer and multimedia. Really, we just celebrating and opening to compassion and just visualizing the world that we want to see here <coughs> Um, And then I do one on New Year's Eve, and then I decided to do the whole thing again on New Year's Day. Uh, And so, like, we couldn't get enough. But anyway, there's postcards there in the back. I left a few. Um, So if you feel so inclined to do something like this, you can read all about it, a lot of details. Um, But I know that it will be a beautiful celebration of our 2012-2013 shift. And in case your life feels a little rocky, everybody I know is having cataclysmic shifting going on. So if you're feeling the flow of that, you're right in there. So the forecast seems to be calling for a bumpy ride into 2013. So just hold tight on your traveling and you'll be good. (laughs) So um, anyway, lots of love, you all. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you.